again, when, when my wife comes to me and says, will you pray for me for something? I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, and what if you're in like Elizabeth, Elizabethan England, Ken, and we're at the, to the dinner table and I mm-hmm. say, I pray thee pass the salt, right? That just, all yeah. it means is, is asking for something, right? I mean, that's ultimately. I pray thee pass the salt. I am a mere man. I, I'm mere, I shall not me? pass you the salt. Welcome to On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley from the Coming Home Network. If you don't know much about the Coming Home Network, come visit us at chnetwork.org. If you like what you're watching, click the subscribe button. Ken Hensley, good to talk to you again. I always love our conversations. They're so good to talk to you. I'm getting excited as we're launching into this new show. But I got to ask you, Matt, haven't you been on the radio like four hours already today? Do you have a brain? Uh, do you have like a brain three, left? Three forty-five, something like that. So yeah, do you I do. Have a brain. I've got enough. I mean, I, mostly I'm just picking your brain today. So this is this is like batting practice, Ken. I just throw you softballs, and then you just sort of tee off. That's that's how I envision these things going. Okay. All right. So uh, I hope so you're a little bit today? warmed up in the shoulders. Uh, so today's topic um, is one that comes up all the time in our work at the Coming Home Network, especially as we're talking with evangelicals um, who have questions about Catholicism. It's a question that you and I both had when you were a Baptist, mm-hmm. I was a Wesleyan, and that is this whole issue— of the Catholic practice of praying to the saints. So I want to hit this on a bunch of different levels, but I can tell you that this is one of the weird things that I thought that Catholics had sort of made it up. It's a tradition of man. It's Uh a pagan practice. Uh I had no idea what was going on when I saw Catholics and this practice. So I just assumed that whatever this was, it weren't biblical. And weren't is the technical. That's the the technical technical term. I'm from Kentucky. Okay. What I want to do then is, if I can, I want to spend a few minutes, maybe three or four minutes, laying uh, the biblical foundations for this Catholic teaching and practice. And then after that, we will go one by one through the various objections that evangelicals, Protestants make to it. Okay, how's that sound? That sounds good. I'm ready. I'm ready. Lock lock and load, Kenneth. Okay. Well, as I began to study Catholicism, Matt, um, this is good because this is an illustration of a particular pattern that I saw emerging. And it would um, be—this was the pattern. There would be some Catholic— doctrine or some Catholic teaching, some, ga- some Catholic practice that at first would seem totally insane to me coming from my evangelical background. I'd been a, basically a Bible Christian for 20 years straight when I began to study Catholicism. Um, so there would be some practice that would just seem like nuts, like insanity to me. And then when I would begin to look at it, and I would begin to actually read what Catholics said about it rather than what anti-Catholics said about it, and really understand what was going on, then suddenly, over time, it would begin to make sense to me, and not only make sense to me, but it would begin to appear to me as something really quite wonderful, and something that was biblical. And this happened several times, um, you know, when dealing with issues that Catholics believe and practice and Protestants don't and, and oppose. Well, this was one of those. I started out thinking to myself, asking the saints in heaven to pray for me. Why would I even consider such a thing? I mean, they're gone, right? They're up there. They're doing their thing. They're basking in the glory of God. They're praying their harps, whatever. They don't even know what I'm doing, and they don't care about me. Why would I even do such a thing? Well, this is one of those, Matt, where over time, 
I began to see first how rooted this practice is in the New Testament's teaching on the communion of saints. And this is where I want to sit for a moment. According to St. Paul, all of us who have been united to Christ in baptism are intimately united to one another as well as members of Christ's mystical body. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, St. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. So this image emerges, Christ, the head of the body, raised from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, sits down on the throne, he pours forth his spirit into this body, and we, members of his body, we become his hands, we become his feet, we become his voice in this world, extending his kingdom into this world. And as members of his body, we're called to serve one another. I pray for you, you pray for me, I teach you, you teach me, I serve you, you serve me. This is all simple stuff. And this is stuff that Protestants believe, and evangelicals believe. Well, here's a key point. Christ only has one body. Now, that may sound like basic, but there's an important implication. He doesn't have one body on earth, in other words, and then another body completely separate up in heaven, uh, one comprised of the, those who belong to him on earth, and then another comprised of those who belong to him that have gone ahead into heaven. There's one body on earth and in heaven, one body, one shepherd, one flock, one people, one people of God. Yeah. Now, during this life, then, I pray, and I, I, I know you do, we all do, I pray every day for those that I love. I pray for my wife, I pray for my kids, I pray for my grandchildren, I pray for my friends. Well, the idea that when I'm with the Lord, suddenly I will stop doing this, first of all, it doesn't even make sense. When I was an evangelical, you know, we would talk as evangelicals all the time about what it meant to be in Christ. It meant that we wanted to learn to think like Jesus thinks, to love like he loves, to do what he does, to imitate him in every way. Well, Hebrews 7 verse 25 tells us that Jesus, who has gone into heaven, quote, ever lives to make intercession for us, unquote. And I remember when it began to hit me, this sort of this image where I thought, okay, so Jesus is up in heaven and he ever lives to make intercession for us. In other words, in, until his entire family is home with him, Jesus is, as it were, on his knees continually bringing our prayers to the Father, interceding for us. And then it, it suddenly hit me. What sense does it make at all to think that Jesus in heaven is on his knees bringing our prayers to the Father, but everyone else in heaven is just off doing other things, you know, laying around in the you know, celestial hammock, drinking lemonade or off. Not really knowing off. what's going on down here, not caring, you know, not caring for their spouses yeah. or children or anything like that. Yeah, it just doesn't even make sense. You know, they're off playing, you know, they're, they're off bowling or, you know, okay, the more, the more, uh, the more normal vision is that they are just immersed in the glory of God and just worshiping God. They've, for, yeah. they've just forgotten us, right? Yeah, there's this sort of wall of separation where, you know, uh, Protestants would say, yes, those in heaven still belong to the body of Christ, 
But there's this kind of wall of separation where they don't really know or really care, and they're not praying for us, and we certainly can't ask them to pray for us. That's sort of the, the view that, that, that I had and that we had. That's have. certainly the view that I would have had. Yeah, know? and yeah, I guess the first point that I want to make is simply that when you look at the theology of the communion of saints and the theology of the church, what the New Testament teaches us about the church as the body of Christ, it doesn't really even make sense to think that those in heaven um, no longer care for us and are no longer praying for us, no longer have us in mind. Yeah, and, but, and also, Ken, the, yeah. there, you mentioned this idea of when you're with the Lord, you're in a more perfect communion than you were here. So you would yeah. be in a more, more of a position to communicate with the Lord if you are in that sort of yeah. exalted and elevated state. I mean, St. Paul says in Romans 14, verse 8, he says, you know, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. The sense that death doesn't really kind of change. If it changes our relationship with the Lord in any mm-hmm. way, it elevates it. Yeah, it intensifies right? it. Yeah, and I think that's the point, that if, that if on earth our goal is to think like he thinks and to love like he loves and to do what he does, then suddenly when we get to heaven, we, we do that less. I mean, he's the only one in heaven who's ever living to make intercession. Right. No one else is, you know. So, so it doesn't even make sense. But secondly, I think this is something that we can see in Scripture itself. And what I'm thinking about here are two very famous passages now for me as a Catholic in the book of Revelation, John's Revelation. Two passages that somehow, I have to admit, I had just never seen before. And I'm going to read one of them. Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 where we read, As I looked, or and I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the, the, scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, there's another passage in Revelation chapter 8 that says basically the same thing, but I'm, I'm not going to read that. But, but, but the point is, okay, get the image here. St. John uh, has a revelation of the throne room of God in heaven. He sees the lamb that has been slain, and surrounding this lamb, he sees 24 elders. And what are they doing? These 24 elders are holding golden bowls full of incense and and it is explained to John that these are the prayers of the saints. Well, which saints? Well, if you look at the context of the book of Revelation, I mean, this is absolutely clear. The saints on earth who are being persecuted, the saints on earth that are suffering uh, terribly, and what, what John is seeing is that up in heaven, these elders are offering up the prayers of the poor saints on earth, and they're offering it up like incense. Okay, so first of all, it makes sense to think that they still love us and that they still would pray for us. It makes sense to think that if I died right now in the middle of this show, fell over dead, and I went to heaven, that I would still care for my family and still be praying for them and still be wanting to help them in every way I could through my prayers. It makes sense. And then we see this image of it right there in the book of Revelation, the 24 elders offering up the prayers of the poor saints on earth. But why are you talking to 
Teresa of Avila? Why are you talking to Francis of Assisi? Why are you talking to any of these people? There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Yes, this is the most common objection that is made and made by virtually everyone. A couple of interesting quotations you might like. Philip Melanchthon summarizing the Lutheran complaint. He put it like this, and I quote, However, it cannot be proved from Scripture that we are to invoke the saints or seek help from them, for there is one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. John Calvin gives the Reformed position on this, and I'm quoting Calvin now, Since the Scripture calls us away from all others to Christ alone, since our Heavenly Father is pleased to gather all things together in Him, it were the extreme of stupidity, not to say madness, to attempt to attain access by any other means so as to be drawn away from him. And then one more quickie. This is from Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, speaking for the Anglicans. Quote, The Romish doctrine concerning the invocation of saints is a fond thing, repugnant to the word of God. And, you know, I'll let you expand on this, but the basic answer that I would give, and it's so simple that it seems almost insane to me that this complaint or this objection continues to be made. Yes, Christ is the unique God-man and the unique mediator between God and human beings. He's the one who hung on the cross. He's the one who died. He's the one who was raised from the dead. Yes, he is our mediator. But as the New Testament makes so clear, in Christ, we become, if you will, many mediators. I mean, in Christ, we become mediators in the sense that we share in his mediatorship. We become a nation of priests, as Peter puts it in first in his first letter. And here's the strange thing. I think, you know, the Bible is absolutely filled with examples of people interceding with God for others. Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses intercedes again and again, falling on his face, um, you know, to pray for the Israelites. David, Jeremiah, Daniel. I mean, you can go through the Bible Everyone is interceding. And then finally, in 1 Timothy 2.5, if this passage is teaching that because Christ is our sole mediator, that we should not invoke the prayers of the saints, that that somehow contradicts it, then I'm wondering, why does Paul only five verses before this write, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men. Yeah, it seems inconsistent. It seems like Paul is saying something very different here, and you don't have to look far to find it, because the verse, 1 Timothy 2.5, that is paraded out so often, mm -hmm. says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But it doesn't say the man Christ Jesus, period. It says the man Christ Jesus, comma. Verse 6 starts off, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Now, if we were to talk about the saints as mediators, do you believe that St. Agatha of Sicily could have given herself as a ransom for the entire human race? No, no. St. Chromatius of Aquileia, perhaps? No. E even St. Peter could have died on the cross and washed away the sins of the human race? No. And Paul is saying, that's what Paul means by one mediator in this context, who gave yeah, himself as a redemption. ransom. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, he's talking about the redemption can All only right. come through Christ. Okay, so then the other question would be, well— isn't it, if, if I grant you that, isn't mm -hmm. it still inefficient for me to go to 
you know, the saints when uh-huh. I could just like cut out the middleman and go straight to God. I, I mean, that's, that's, I think one of the other objections that, that comes up all the time. Why not just go straight to God? And, and well, there are a number of ways to address this. I'm kind of curious about how you would handle this uh, and, and how you came to understand it as a former Baptist. Well, first of all, yes, St. Paul in Ephesians 2.18, he tells us that through Jesus, we both Jews and Gentiles have access by one spirit to the Father. Yes, Hebrews 6, uh, 4, verse, excuse me, Hebrews 4, verse 16 says, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace and timely help. So, yes, someone could ask, why reach out to the saints? Why do that when you can go straight to God? And often the analogy an analogy is made that goes something like this. Hey, look, if you had direct access to the president of the United States, I mean, if you could just call him on the phone anytime and talk to him, why in the world would you mess around with calling congressmen or senators or sending emails or anything like that? That's the analogy. But my answer, again, it's just so simple. I would, ask by, I would answer by asking the question, why do you ask anyone on earth to pray for you then? Why don't you just go straight to God? And why does Paul command anyone on earth to pray? Why does he command us to pray for one another? Why doesn't he just say, all of you just go straight to God? Why does James tell us that the prayers of a righteous man avail much or accomplish much? I'm thinking when I read that, well, who cares whether the prayers of a righteous man accomplish much if it's better just to go straight to God anyway? Well, how about this, Ken? What are those elders doing carrying the bowls full of prayers? Why can't the saints skip through the elders and just give the prayers to God themselves? You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, it, it just, we don't, we don't act like this in real life. If I've got something that I want you to think, mm-hmm. Ken, I'll say it to you, but I'll also pull one of my friends inside and say, I've been really trying to work on Ken about this. Do you mind mentioning something to him too? I mean, that's, we, yes. we operate like that in normal life. Uh, why would it, I mean, if, if Christ has set up everything in that's our right. world for a reason, there's, there's so many relationships that we deal with that way. Why wouldn't it be that way with the body of Christ here and those who have gone well, on before us. Yes, and that's why these objections so far, and these are a couple of the most important, this is, this is why these objections seem so strange to me, because the Bible is just absolutely filled with examples of people interceding for other people. In the body of Christ, we intercede, we're commanded to intercede. So why would, it just seems like, why would someone pull this out of the hat to complain about invoking the saints uh, that is, why, why, why pull this specific complaint out of the hat? Well, just go straight to God. Or don't you know there's only one mediator? Yeah, that was doesn't a, make sense. That was a thin complaint. That wasn't one. That's one that I heard a lot once I became Catholic from my yeah. evangelical friends. But one that I actually did have, and this is one that really bothered me, um, okay. is isn't praying to the saints a form of worship. Because that was what kept me for so long from from having mm. the courage to say, you know, St. Patrick, pray for us, or, or, or whatever it happens to be, because I, I was so conditioned to think that any form of prayer was a form of worship. Yeah, and that's a conditioning. But again, I, I, I think that rationally, it's, it's such an easy objection to answer. And I'll answer it like this. Let me just ask you a question. Matt, are you worshiping your friend when you ask him to pray for you? Absolutely not. Okay, when you ask your wife to pray for you about something, um, or when your wife asks you, I'll turn around the other way, when your wife asks you to pray for her about something, do you respond to your wife by saying, get thee behind sorry, me, Satan? Sorry, you're going to have to, you know, you know don't I mean, bow Who do you to think I am? Me. God? Who do you think I am? God, I'm merely a man. What are you praying <laughs> right. me for? Why are you asking me to pray for you? Why don't you go straight to, 
to the Father. And don't you know there's one mediator? I mean, do you say those things? No, of course I wouldn't say those things. Uh, you know, and there, there's another thing that muddies this from my Protestant experience, too, is that, you know, Catholics have a kind of a distinction, a clear distinction between the idea of praising something or praising somebody mm-hmm. and the idea of mm-hmm. worship, whereas in my Bible college context, praise and worship was a musical genre. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. praise and worship were conflated so often that there's there wasn't any distinction in my mind between the two. Praise and worship was a it was a form of honoring yeah. God so that you you now I understand, yeah. you know, and I would have understood if I took the time to just think about it, when my son gets a decent report card, I praise him for that. I don't worship him for that. Those are two distinct categories of honor. You don't praise and worship him? <laughs> I don't praise and worship him. No, I don't play a, you know, I could sing of no, your love forever to him or whatever it is that you know, I don't know I think what's hot what, right now. I think what you're saying is 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 really true. I hadn't thought of that, but I think that praise and worship in an evangelical um, context, kind of blend together and seem to sort of mean the same thing. And so there is this feeling about it. But again, rationally, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Again, when, when my wife comes to me and says, will you pray for me for something? I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, and what if you're in like Elizabeth, Elizabethan England, Ken, and we're at the, to the dinner table and I mm-hmm. say, I pray thee pass the salt, right? That just, all yeah. it means is, is asking for something, right? I mean, that's ultimately... I pray thee pass the salt. I am a mere man. I, I'm I shall not me? pass you the salt, you know? Uh, okay, so, for it. so so let's, let's, let's do this one. Now we're getting into kind of, you know, more sort of the practical concerns that are weird, okay. but do come up in our work, and that is, okay, um, does this mean because you're going to marry that you think mm-hmm. she can soften God up for you because you're afraid to go to God? Or do you want to go to this person mm-hmm. or that person because you feel like God is too strident and you feel like these humans maybe mm-hmm. will just like kind of weaken his will a little bit? Well, this is another common complaint. In fact, Lorraine Bettner in his famous anti-Catholic book, Roman Catholicism, um, he says it like this, quote, how dishonoring it is to Christ to teach that he is so lacking in pity and compassion for his people that he must be persuaded to that end. And yet, you know what, I had that thought too. And I'm, and I'm not going to say that there isn't someone on earth who actually thinks that. That is some Catholic on earth who thinks, oh man, going to God, this is too rough. But Lorraine Bettner, by the way, is also a Calvinist who believes in the immutable will of you God know. and that we don't have our okay. own wills either. So he's got that to deal with. <laughs> right. He's like, why would he's we pray around. anyway? Because uh-huh. you ask for stuff anyway, because God's will is, you can't change God's will. Well, the, the simplest answer to this, again, is simply to ask the question, so is this a case? I mean, do we imply that God is stingy somehow when we ask our Christian brothers and sisters on earth to pray for us? I mean, are we implying that God is stingy and that we've got to, to use your term, that we've got to kind of soften him up when we go to our brothers and sisters and ask them to pray for us? And the answer is obviously no. Now, now again, someone may think this way, that, that this objection is sort of epitomizing. Someone may think this way. There may be a Catholic out there that actually thinks this way, but the objection rationally is, again, not a good objection, unless you're willing to apply it all the way across the board, that every time you ask someone, you know, to pray for you, you're implying that God is stingy. You should have gone straight to God. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, Gosh, there's so many other things I want to get to. This is one that I definitely want to get to, though, Ken. Okay. And that is the clear testimony of scripture regarding necromancy uh regarding it in the book of leviticus regarding it in a whole bunch of different things thou shalt not even permit a witch to live right all these other things that are going on in the mosaic law including up into the Mm -hmm. fact when saul who's looking for some advice 
conjures up the spirit of Samuel from the dead, and all Samuel does when he comes back from the dead in this seance is just yell at Saul for bringing him back from the dead. So, I mean, that seems to me pretty clear. Uh, it seemed to yeah. me pretty clear that this is what Catholics were basically doing by praying to saints. And I, of course, have a different understanding now, but I wonder how you dealt with that. Yeah, and w- when you read that story of Saul and the Witch of Endor, it certainly isn't portrayed as being a good thing, right, what he did. No, I mean, he when loses he... everything on account of this. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, to answer this, I thought lest I become too windy, um, I wanted to mention Patrick Madrid has written a wonderful little book with a wonderful title called, um, the title is Any Friend of God's is a Friend of Mine. It's a great title for a book on the communion of saints and on prayers, invocations of the saints. It's a really handy and practical book too. Yeah. Any Friend of God's is a Friend of Mine. This is how he addresses the subject. And I thought it'd be better just to read this quickly because I think he he does well. Necromancy is the attempt to harness diabolical powers. It is gravely sinful and has been condemned by the Catholic Church since the time of the early fathers down to our own age. Okay, that's important. It's been condemned by the Catholic Church since the time of the early fathers and down to our own age. But this has nothing to do with our asking saints to pray for us. When a Christian asks the Blessed Virgin Mary or any other saint for prayer, he is not attempting to conjure up the spirit of that person. There is no effort made. There is not even the slightest thought to do anything other than to ask for that person's intercession. He isn't calling up the dead. And besides, the saints aren't really dead at all. They're far more alive than we are. And I, I think that that answers it. There, it. Necromancy is a whole other thing, wanting to call up the dead, conjure up the dead to gain powers or whatever. It's a whole other thing. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? I mean, just, just that. I mean, these are different categories. Um, you're asking... You're not asking somebody's spirit to come back and do tricks for you. I mean, this is that's not what's happening here. Uh, but the other question is, and this is you know kind of one of the 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 final difficulties that I had. And I think actually when I was having conversations with my wife on my way into the church, and you know she was a cradle Catholic, and I was on my way in and trying to figure out all these things, and it was my mm-hmm. question was, but how do I know that they can hear me? Right. I mean, how do I know? I mean, what's mm-hmm. am I wasting my breath? Uh, you know, and and I've even heard articulations like, well, Saint Patrick was a Roman who spoke Gaelic. How's he even going to understand what I'm saying if he can't hear me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's like <laughs> you all these prayers. Weird. You don't make your prayers in Gaelic? Uh, not anymore. You know, <laughs> not anymore. Not unless I'm doing a séance. Yeah, you know? yeah. This is one of the big, big ones too. You know, just the simple question: How can a saint in heaven hear thousands of prayers? coming in different languages from different people. And it's posed like this. Aren't you Catholics essentially making the saints in heaven into omniscient beings? Don't they have to be God to do this? Well, a, a couple of things I, I would say. Besides the fact, first of all, that everything about the life of the saints in heaven is supernatural, everything about that life is miraculous. The saints with God live in a, in a, in a realm outside of space and time, Besides the fact that St. Paul tells us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it ever even entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. Despite the fact that the Bible says that we don't know what we're going to be like, but when we're there, we're going to be like him. I asked the simple question that, that you posed again a little bit back. Well, how did those 24 elders described in Revelation, how did they know what the saints on earth needed? How did they know what the saints on earth were praying for? Yeah. And then 
another little passage from the Gospels. Do you remember when Jesus said that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents? Than How do they know? Righteous yeah. people. <laughs> How do, How they, do they, know? they know? How do they know that someone repented? You know, and then when Jesus talks about our angels watching over us, you know, the guardian angel verse, that there are angels in heaven, behold the face of our Father. You know, you add these things together, Revelation, two passages, in fact, in Revelation, where these 24 elders are described as offering up the prayers of the poor suffering saints on earth. Then you add together Jesus saying there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. You add these things together, and all I can say is, Invoking the prayers of the saints is rooted firmly in the New Testament teaching on the nature of the church and the communion of saints. It's something Christians have believed and practiced throughout the ages, and it makes sense. In fact, I wanted to kind of finish with this, but in the catacombs of Rome, early on, we find messages scratched into the walls, and I've actually seen one of them when I was there. It's, it's really crazy, but scratched into the walls of the catacombs, messages like, Make petition for us. Pray for your sister. Pray for your parents. Help us when you come to the judge. You know, calling out to those that have already died and gone ahead, make petition for us. Please pray for us. Pray for your sister. Pray for your parents. Yeah. Anyway, one final quotation from St. Jerome that I think is good. He's answering the heretic Vigilantius who also rejected this practice. And this is what St. Jerome says. You say in your book that while we live, we are able to pray for each other, but afterwards when we have died, the prayer of no person for another can be heard. But if the apostles and martyrs while still alive in the body can pray for others at a time when they ought to be still so solicitous for themselves, how much more will they do so after their crowns, their victories and triumphs? Yeah. And, you know, think about in the book of Hebrews when uh, the, the great faith chapter of, you know, Hebrews 11. And, uh, you know, what does Hebrews 12 start off with? Mm -hmm. Since we have all these great stories to learn from, or since we have all these great accounts of holiness from other people, no, it says what? Mm -hmm. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. You know? Yeah, and that's, that's a good one. Um, there's so much in there. Uh, and, and, you know, just the final thing that I would mention is that Protestants mm -hmm. do not believe this doctrinally, but a lot of them feel this instinctively. And the only example I'm going to use for this, I don't know if you listen to much classic country, but there's a song by Bobby Bear called Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalposts of Life. Not That's known a good for title. It's a great one. <laughs> End over end, neither left nor the right, straight to the heart of them, righteous uprights. But here's one of these verses from this, and it's one of those kind of Protestant mm -hmm. me and Jesus kind of songs. But it says, bring on the brothers who've gone on before and all of the sisters who've knocked at your door and all the departed dear loved ones of mine and stick them up front on the offensive line. I that's mean, amazing. But that's, people will yeah, hear people that, talk like that, even though they don't believe it doctrinally, mm -hmm. they feel that kind of thing instinctively. You score a touchdown, you point to mm -hmm. heaven. Thank you, mm -hmm. mom. I know you, you, you mm -hmm. can be here in person, but I know you're watching. And I think that C.S. Lewis said something similar. I mean, he was Anglican. He never became Catholic. But he even said somewhere, and I don't remember the citation, but he said that, 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 that speaking to those we love who have gone ahead feels so natural that, that it's only by a strong act of the will that we could keep ourselves from doing it.
Yeah, that's an excellent point. Well, I hope that you've gotten into this discussion. Maybe we answered some of your questions. Maybe we raised some more questions for you. If you appreciated this particular episode of On the Journey uh, with me, Matt Swain, my colleague Ken Hensley, uh, we encourage you to subscribe uh, and uh, catch more podcasts and videos like this. Of course, you can also go to chnetwork.org to read lots of our stories. Maybe you need help with something that you're struggling with along the way. We do that all the time, all day, every day at the Coming Home Network. And uh, yeah, come check out our online community as well at chnetwork.org. Ken, thanks so much. Yeah, it was great to be with you again, Matt. We'll talk to you later. All right, see you next time. Thank you.